Good morning, Fellowship Greenville. So good to see you and be with you today. Um, I want to talk about something this morning that I think is one of the most confusing things that Christians deal with, and that is the whole matter of prayer and healing. Um, my grandmother got breast cancer. She had surgery. She had follow-up radiation treatments, and she was healed. The cancer never, never came back, and she died of old age. My mother got breast cancer. People prayed for her. Uh, she had surgery and follow-up treatments. Cancer came back several times, and it finally took her life. She died of cancer. And so it makes me think, like, what happened? I mean, did we have more faith when we prayed for my grandmother than my mother? Uh, or, or, Or did we have more and better prayers for my grandmother than we did my mother? Like, how do you make sense of that? I know you know the same frustration. I imagine pretty much everyone in the room have or here in the room or watching remotely, have struggled with this very same thing. Why is one person healed and another not? Why does prayer seem to work one time and not another? And the unsettling, maddening reality of divine healing is this, that sometimes God heals and sometimes He doesn't, and He never bothers to explain why. And when we come to the passage of Scripture we're going to look at today, things can become even more confusing. So I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn to James chapter 5, one of the most debated, misunderstood, and misapplied Scriptures and passages in all of Scripture. We're going to look at verses 13 to 18. And scholars and theologians have debated the meaning of this passage for, uh, for centuries, and they still don't agree on the interpretation of various parts of these verses. And I confess, it's not always been clear to me. But I spent a lot of time over the years praying and pondering and studying, and I've come to see this passage with a new clarity. Not that I have it all figured out, but I do see some things with clarity that, that I think if, if, if we take to heart and if we grasp what James is saying here, and you put what we're going to talk about into practice this morning, I believe it can radically change your experience of the Christian life and dramatically transform the way we do church. James 5, 13, follow along as I read. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it would not rain. And for three and a half years, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth bore fruit. Now, when I read this passage, I got a whole lot of questions that pop in my mind. Like, I mean, is this something that we should practice today in the church? And if so, if we practice it, what can we expect? Uh, James seems to be guaranteeing healing for those that the elders pray for. He says the prayer of faith will restore the one who is sick. Will restore, not might restore, but will. So is this a promise we can claim. And what is this prayer of faith? Anyway, if, if we follow what James says here, 
should we expect healing? And uh, from every sickness we pray for, is healing a guaranteed a guarantee if we follow this pattern? And if healing doesn't occur, does the fault lie in the fact that we simply didn't have enough faith, or more in keeping with what the verses say, is the fault that the elders didn't have enough faith? And why call for the elders at all? Are, are their prayers more effective than, than non-elders? Why not call for those with the gift of healing? Why the elders? And why are the elders supposed to anoint with oil when they pray for healing? What good does anointing with oil do? And, and, and then, then it says we're to call uh, for the elders if, or when we call for the elders, if, as verse 16 says, we confess our sins and pray for one another to be healed. Like, how, how does that work? Like, why would you call for the elders if we can pray for each other and be healed? And oh, and this whole thing about Elijah praying for rain, what, what is that all about? Now, there's lots of questions that pop into my mind, and to answer those questions, we've got to do this morning, today, we've got to do some serious Bible study here. We actually need to unpack almost every phrase in this passage because there's so much misinterpretation and misapplication swirling around almost every phrase. And in fact, we're going to spend two weeks on this whole topic of prayer and healing because there is so much confusion and Scripture twisting going on in the church regarding divine healing. There's a whole lot of what I would call folk Christianity that is not based on Scripture, but we kind of live that out. Now, that said, we need to begin with a fundamental principle of understanding and interpreting of the Bible, and that is the key to rightly interpreting any Bible passage is to understand the text in context. To understand the text, you must understand the context. Because you see, a Bible verse doesn't mean what you think it means or what you want it to mean. A verse means what God meant it to mean when it was first written down to real people living in a real place going through a particular set of circumstances. In other words, a Bible verse can't mean what it never meant. And this is one of the ways that we sometimes abuse the Bible. We rip verses out of context and turn them into promises that we think we can claim that back God into a corner so that he has to answer our prayer. But God will not be backed into our corners, especially with verses that we've ripped out of context and turned into promises hoping to get what we want. To understand a passage of Scripture, you've got to understand the text in context. Now, that means, here in James, it means we need to know and understand the purpose of the entire book, the, the flow of the entire book. We got to understand what, what was said before this paragraph and what comes after this paragraph. We got to understand the text in context. So important. Like if I said to you, Chris Corley, my good, a good friend, my good friend and uh, chairman of elders, if I said Chris Corley was dying, how would you take that? I mean, you'd probably think that he had some kind of life-threatening disease or that he had been in an accident and was on the verge of death. But let me, let me put that statement in context. Several years ago, the Corleys and the Boyds uh, were vacationing together at the beach, and one day, as we sat around the pool, we were remembering how our families took a road trip to Michigan to Jason Malone's wedding. So that's how long I've known Jason. We went to his wedding, and I got stories I could tell, but I won't. Um, but after the wedding, we drove down to uh, Niagara Falls, and we had booked uh, rooms in a very nice hotel. And when we pulled up to this swanky hotel, 
and the Corleys, 15-passenger, Econoline van full of kids, pulling a trailer, looking like the Beverly Hillbillies. The attendant out front insisted that we had reservations at a different hotel, probably because I was wearing a ball cap, and I turned it sideways, and I said, hey, can you help us know where to park? <laughs> and and, uh, and, and with, we, 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 when we remembered this story, we were telling this story, we were all just dying laughing, and Chris Corley was dying. See, the context changes everything. Chris Corley was dying far from meaning that he's on the verge of death, meant that he was having the time of his life. So you remove that uh, statement from context, and you see how easily it is to misunderstand the meeting. So, What's the context of this passage that we're studying this morning? Well, we've been studying the book of James since last fall. The entire book is written to Jewish Christians who've been scattered. They've been run out of Jerusalem and Judea, and uh, they're being persecuted and afflicted and tormented and ridiculed and punished and oppressed and mistreated because uh, they have put their faith in Jesus as the Messiah. And uh, James opens his letter by saying this letter is to the 12 tribes scattered abroad, Jewish Christians. And he writes, verse 2, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials, like being persecuted, afflicted, tormented, that kind of thing. And now the trials were coming from the outside, but they weren't just coming from the outside. Some of the trials were coming from inside the church. In chapter 2, we see how the church was full of partiality and prejudice and lack of concern for those in need. In chapter 3, James addressed the issues of gossip and slander and jealousy and arrogance and selfish ambition in the church. James called, the, called them on the carpet in chapter 4 for fighting and quarreling and judging each other. Anger, which he mentions back in chapter 1, had affected the believer's prayer life, their communion with God, and their fellowship with each other. And these, it was just a mess. It was a mess. The church was sick because of sin in the church. And this is the context that this passage that we're going to look at is set in. The Christians, these Christians were living on a spiritual battlefield where their faith is being tested and tried, and they weren't doing very well. The church was sick, and people in the church were sick because of sin. Now, the hard times were making them hard-hearted, and so James calls them to do the one thing that can regenerate and refresh spiritual uh, vitality and can stabilize a a, a faltering faith. The one thing, and and that one thing is prayer. Now, seven times in six verses, James mentions prayer. So first and foremost, this passage set in the context of trials and tests and sin in the church is about prayer. Prayer for those who are spiritually fatigued, prayer for those whose faith is shaken, beaten up, worn down, wavering, prayer for those who are weighed down with sin and selfishness. And and in these six verses, James calls us to three kinds of prayer, and then he gives us an Old Testament example of what effective prayer looks like, okay? So we've got to do some serious Bible study. You ready for this? Thank you, Mike. All right, first he calls us to personal prayer. Verse 13, is anyone suffering? Anybody in trouble? Anybody going through hard times? Let him pray. 
the obvious point is when you're in trouble, pray. That's the easiest thing in this passage to understand. I think we all get that, right? And we, so the, but the question is, what do we pray for? And we certainly can pray for relief. We can pray for the trouble to pass. The early church prayed for Peter's release from prison, and God sent an angel and set him free and answered a prayer, Acts 12. Paul had some kind of physical ailment that was keeping him from, in his mind, from doing effective ministry, and he prayed three times for it to be removed. God said no, but he felt free to ask God for what he thought he needed. So we can and should pray for God to intervene in our lives to remove pain and suffering. However, remember the context This isn't the first time that James has talked about prayers relating to trials. Back in chapter 1, verse 5, he said, he said, if any of you lacks wisdom, you're going through these trials, and if you don't, if you lack wisdom as to how to act in the trial, how to put your faith into action in the trial, ask God who gives generously to all, and he won't hold anything back, and it'll be given to you. So when you're in trouble, also, and along with praying for relief, also pray for wisdom. That's what James has been saying. Because we know from this book, our study of this book, that God allows trials and troubles to come into our life in order to refine our faith, to strengthen our faith and our ability to persevere, and to grow us up to be more like Jesus. So James tells us in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 5, we're to pray not simply for deliverance from the trial, but wise endurance through the trial. So, when you pray for relief and relief doesn't come, ask God for wisdom and pray for God to do whatever he needs to do in you to make you more like Jesus. So, then um, James goes on and he says, uh, is anybody cheerful? Let him sing praises. So, when you're cheerful, sing praises. Now, there's an odd, this word cheerful is an odd word because it doesn't mean the emotion of happiness based on good circumstances, but rather it's an inner disposition of heart that is resting in and content with what Jesus is doing no matter what he's doing. The word is used here and only two other times in the New Testament, and the other two times occur in Acts 27, where Luke tells us that Paul was at peace in the middle of a storm that would ultimately sink the ship that he was on. So Paul told the passengers and crew, don't worry, no lives will be lost. And he spoke confidently about that because Paul had been told by God in prayer that God was going to take him to Rome and he would stand before Caesar to testify about Jesus. And the fact that God had told him what he was going to do gave Paul confidence and peace of mind, courage and confidence that God is at work in the midst of the storm. That's the word cheerful. In other words, it's being able to sing, it is well with my soul no matter, no matter what. That's the point that God That's ultimately the point that God wants to bring us all to, that deep in the core of who we are, deep in our souls, we learn to consider it joy when we encounter various trials and sing praise. Sing praise. So, he says, when you're in trouble, pray. When you find yourself at peace in the middle of a storm, sing praise. And then there's a third question that leads to a second kind of prayer, and that's in verse 14, and that's elder prayer. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. So he moves from personal prayer to calling for the elders, to calling for the spiritual leaders of the church 
to come and pray for you. So the point is, when you're sick, you may need to call for the elders. You go, well, where's, wait a minute, may? Where's that in the text? It says, no, call for, yeah, just stay with me. I'm going to tell you why I added the word may comes from the context. Now, I think we would all agree that sickness is as much a trial as anything else that we encounter in life. But here's where I got a whole bunch more questions. Like, why does James give special attention to this particular trial? Why might you need to call for the elders to pray for you when you're sick, but not when your business is crumbling or your marriage is falling apart? Why sickness and not other things as well? Why would God seemingly promise to remove a trial that results from a physical illness, but not necessarily other kinds of trials? As I said in, in, in uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10, Paul tells that he prayed three times for God to remove a physical ailment that he believed was making him weak and not as effective in ministry, and God chose not to remove it. And God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in your weakness. So Paul prayed for healing, and God chose not to heal him. Now, here's the question. If Paul had called for the elders of the church to come pray for him, would he have been healed? All good questions, questions that can only be answered in the context. So in verses 14 and 15, James uses two different words for sickness. Two different words that basically mean the same thing. And they mean sick, and as a result of the sickness, you are weak and weary. In other words, these words suggest that the sick person is incapacitated. They are bedridden, too sick to go to the elders, so the elders come to him. That's why it says they come and pray over him. That's why it says the Lord will raise him up. This person is so weak, so weary, that she can't go to them, so they come to her. Now, there's something else about the sickness here, and that is the context of this passage strongly suggests that the sickness that James is talking about here has come as a result of sin. Now, when you read the New Testament, you do find several references to the fact that physical illness and premature death may be the result of God's discipline for unconfessed sin in the life of a believer. In Acts 5, we read how uh, that in the church, in a public meeting in the church, a couple, Ananias and Sapphira, acted in a publicly hypocritical way, and when confronted on the spot by Peter, they fell dead right there, and they were taken out and buried. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30, the apostle Paul rebuked the church for the disrespectful way it was observing the Lord's Supper, and Paul said, for this reason, many, many among you are weak and sick, and a number have died. And James knows this, and it's why he writes in verses 15 and 16, the prayer offered in faith will save, restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And here it is, if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. And also in, in verses 19 and 20, if any among you strays from the truth and one of you turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save, that is restore his soul, his life, from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So in this context, the verses before and after, verses 14 and 15 and 19 and 20 have to do with sin being the possible cause of sickness and even premature death. So there's no question in James' mind 
that there's a distinct possibility that physical illness and premature death can be the result of unconfessed sin. Not always. Jesus makes that clear in John chapter 9 with the man born blind. He wasn't born blind because of any sin of his parents, and he didn't stay blind because of any sin that he had committed. Sin wasn't the cause of the sickness. Jesus makes that clear. So all sickness is not the result of sin. But there can be a sin-sickness connection, and that's what James is highlighting in this passage. And in this context, think about it, because the whole book focuses on how these believers were not acting in faith in the midst of trials, the church was sick. They were turning in on each other, against each other, and the church was sick and believers were sick. Verse 14, is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will save, restore the one who is sick the Lord will raise him up, and here it is again. If he's committed sin, they will be forgiven him. So the sick man calls for the elders. He has, if he, if, if he has known sin in his life, he confesses his sin. The elders anoint with oil and pray in the name of Jesus. And if he sinned, his confession of sin allows him to experience spiritual healing as well as physical healing. You see this connection. Here's the connection. Sin, sickness, confession, Prayer, healing. Back to verse 14. The elders pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith, or the prayer offered in faith, will save. We're not talking about eternal salvation. This is a word that means save, restore his health. Has nothing to do with eternal salvation. The prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. Question, is this an unconditional promise and guarantee for healing? Just follow this formula, call for the elders, have them pray over you, anoint with oil, God heals you. That's what it says, but is that what it means? Mm, not exactly. Let's dig a little bit deeper. There are two very misunderstood phrases that we need to unpack. First, he says, the elders are to pray over the sick person, anointing him with oil in the name of Jesus. That's the first phrase, in the name of the Lord. And second, the prayer must be offered in faith. That's the second misunderstood phrase. Now, we're going to unpack them both. First, verse 14, the prayer must be offered in the name of the Lord. That is not just saying the words in the name of Jesus as if it were some formula or some magical incantation, just saying in the name of the Lord doesn't make your prayer powerful. I've had people write me because like sometimes I forgot to say in the name of Jesus I pray, and they said, well, you're, you didn't pray in the name of Jesus today. Okay. Like that, it's not some kind of magical tacked on phrase, but that's the way we treat it sometimes. Here, here's the, here, what does that mean then? Okay, here's what it means. One of the things you learn from the life of Jesus is that he healed people where God was already working. In other words, Jesus did not initiate divine he healing. He didn't go through a town and just willy-nilly, hey, healed, healed. Oh, you got faith, healed. He did, he, he, that's not how he did ministry. He, 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 God, this one? Should I heal this one? I mean, no, he, he didn't do ministry like that. He looked for the Father to show him 
who to heal. And Jesus didn't heal everyone who was sick. He only healed those who the Father was choosing to heal. In John chapter 5, verse 15, Jesus healed a paralytic man lying beside a pool. And John tells us that there was a great number of sick people laying there beside the pool. But Jesus healed one man. Why just this one man? He could have waved his hand and healed them all. Jesus tells us later on what he was doing there. He says the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the father doing because whatever the father does, the son does. Jesus healed this man because God was working in this man and had reasons for healing this man. And for reasons only known to God, obviously, it was not God's will to heal anyone else that day except that one man. So to pray in the name of the Lord means to pray in keeping with how Jesus lived and did ministry. How did Jesus live and do ministry? By looking for where God was working so he could join him there. Are you seeing this? Genuine prayer is not simply running a grocery list of all the things we want God to do for us and tacking on to the end of it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. No, praying in Jesus' name is a posture of prayer where we are constantly looking for where God is working so we can join in what he's already doing. Again, hear me, we can certainly ask for what we want and think we need. That's prayer. We can do that. But there's much more to prayer than that. Praying in the name of Jesus means praying and being open and looking for how God is already working and how God might want to work, and he might want to work in a way that's different from what we're hoping and praying. And we have to be good with that. Prayer offered in the name of Jesus is prayer that is looking for and open to how God is already working. That's the first phrase that we need to understand. The second is closely related, and it's found in verse 15. And the prayer of faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. The prayer of faith or the prayer offered in faith, what does that mean? When the elders are called to pray for someone who's sick, they must pray in keeping with how Jesus did life and ministry, in keeping with the idea that God is working already. We're not starting the process. He's already at work in this person's life. And they're praying and asking God to reveal what he might be doing. And when God reveals what he's doing, then, and if, I say when and if God reveals what he's doing, then and only then do we pray in faith. Can we pray in faith? You see, this is that folk Christianity that I'm talking about. Praying in faith has very little to do with how much faith you have. Jesus says you only need the faith about the size of a grain of sand. Praying in faith has nothing to do with working hard and getting before God and saying, God, we believe. We really believe that you're going to do this. And holding on to that thing that you want so bad, and you're just praying, and you're frantic, and you're fervent. It has nothing to do with that. And not doubting can, can allow for a doubt. No, praying in faith is very different from what we think. Let, let me push pause right here and go down to the end of the passage and look at verses 17 and 18. And let's look at how and why James uses the Elijah story of praying for rain to explain the ideas 
behind both of these phrases. Verse 17 says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it would not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. How does that fit? Well, the odd thing to me is why James chose this Elijah story of praying for God to hold back rain and then praying for him to send rain rather than using another Elijah story, the, Elijah's, uh, the story of Elijah's prayer for the healing of the widow of Zarephath's son. Why, did he choose, why didn't he choose a story that was really about healing? Why about rain? That story, Elijah healing the widow's son, has all the ingredients to fit James' point here if James' focus was simply about healing. Elijah had come to stay with a woman who had a son that fell ill and died. She felt the illness and the death of her son were directly related to sin in her life. She confessed this to Elijah, who was God's prophet and spiritual leader of Israel. He prays for healing. Her son is restored. What could be a better example than that? The story, that story perfectly makes James' point if he simply wanted to teach the power of prayer to raise up the sick. But the fact that the Spirit of God did not lead James to use that story is extremely significant and has to be understood in order to understand both of these misunderstood phrases. (laughs) Stay with me. The story James does use here is found in 1 Kings 17 and 18. The great prophet Elijah prayed that it would not rain because of the sinfulness of the people of Israel. Moses had said in Deuteronomy 28 that when God's people failed to obey his commandments, he would discipline them by holding back the rain and there would be famine in the land. But when, if the people humbled themselves, confessed their sins and turned back to God and they prayed, then rain would return. So here's the pattern. Sin, discipline, confessing sin, prayer, and the discipline is removed. That's exactly what happened in the Elijah story James chose as an illustration of his main point. That's the connection between the Old Testament story and the real life story James is writing into. Some of the Christians to whom James were writing were being disciplined by God because of their sin. And they needed to confess and repent of their sin. And James says that if they confessed their sins, they would be restored and they would experience spiritual and physical healing. Again, think about the Elijah story James uses. It's a perfect example. Sin, sickness, premature death, confession and repentance, healing and restoration. Now, you you see, the, the most striking thing about the Elijah example is that Elijah just, he didn't just simply make up these prayers to hold back rain and to send rain. He wasn't just praying for what he wanted or what the people wanted. Elijah prayed what God told him he was going to do. God told him, I'm going to hold back rain. Elijah prayed that way. God told him, I'm going to send rain. And Elijah prayed And he prayed persistently because if you remember the story, and I encourage you to go back and read it, but it's like he was praying for rain to come and nothing happened. He prayed again for rain to come. Nothing happened. He prayed again for rain to come. 
God already told him this was going to happen, but this is how he's praying. And all of a sudden, he sees like a cloud that looks like about the size of a hand, and it starts raining. The point is, God revealed to Elijah that he would discipline the people by withholding rain, and there would be a famine in the land. And then after three and a half years, after the people confessed their sin and turned away from, uh, turned away from uh, worshiping idols and turned back to the Lord, God revealed to Elijah he would send rain again. So Elijah, in response to God's word, by faith in God's word, Elijah prayed for rain, the rain stopped. And then in response to God's word, by faith in God's word, he prayed for rain to come, and the rain came. Why? Because both times, God told Elijah what he was going to do, and Elijah prayed in faith that God would do it. You see, the prayer of faith is prayer in keeping with what God has revealed he will do. Let me just summarize these two phrases. Prayer that results in healing must be in the name of the Lord, that is, in keeping with looking for what God wants to do in a situation or circumstance so we can join him in that work. And then prayer offered in faith is the prayer that is in keeping with what God reveals to you that he's going to do. It means part of your prayers should, be, should sound something like this. God, show me where and how you're working in all this. I don't understand it. Show me where you're working. And God, show me what you want to do in this situation. And when, if God shows you, then pray in faith that way. So to experience the reality of this promise, we need to know something about what God wants to do in that situation, maybe in that person's life. I'm going to talk about this more next week because I, I, I did say we're going to spend two. Did I say that? We're going to spend two weeks on this? Okay. All right. All right. We're going to do this next week, and I've, I'm going to give you two real-life stories that happened. They were running side by side, and in one, cent, one, in one story, the elders and pastors sensed that God was going to heal. and the other story, we never had that sense. We prayed for healing, but we learned a lot of stuff through that. I'm going to give you that story next week. So, um, I know you're saying, well, what about the anointing with oil thing? Okay. In Bible times, people anointed with oil for all kinds of reasons. Oil was used cosmetically. It was used medicinally. It had sacramental symbolic value in that priests and kings and prophets were all anointed. Even uh, holy objects in the temple were anointed with oil, symbolizing how they were set apart for special service. Oil also symbolized God's working through the Holy Spirit. So most likely, the oil was symbolic, symbolic of the Spirit's work, symbolic of setting somebody apart and asking for the Spirit to work in their life. We, we don't know for sure, but I can say this for sure. The oil was not an essential part in securing the healing. How do I know that? Because the next verse, verse 16, doesn't mention oil, only prayer. As I said, this passage is first and foremost about prayer. The next verse says, confess your sins and pray for one another that you might be healed. It didn't say carry around a little vial of oil and everybody you pray for, anoint them. It was something going on with the spiritual leader, leaders and the oversight of the church that was symbolic, like communion is symbolic. So he says, when you're in trouble, pray. When you have peace in the middle of a storm, sing, sing praise. When you're sick, you might need to call for the elders 
Because there may be a connection between sickness and sin in your life, and you want spiritual leaders of the church to pray with you about that. Or you might just want elder support. Because verse 15 does say, if he's committed sin. So there's the very distinct possibility that the, there's no sin in the life of this person. And, and you just maybe, maybe you just want the elders to pray for you because of the seriousness of the illness you're facing. That's, that's entirely okay. That's proper and permissible. Now, let me tell you how we do this here at Fellowship Greenville. When someone requests prayer from the elders for healing, we arrange a time to meet together. Um, we have gone to a person's home and prayed over them when they were too sick to get out of bed. We've also gone to the hospital and prayed for people in sick bed there. But most of the time, the elders pray for people between the first and second services. When someone asks for prayer, we ask them to uh, contact our care pastor, Trenton Stokes, or his assistant. And so that Trenton or the assistant will contact that person and find out what is it exactly you're wanting the elders to pray for. And we find out the nature of the sickness. And then, um, then uh, Trenton sends out uh, to all the elders, here's, here's Sally Jones, and she wants prayer for this and maybe a little bit of story behind that. We like to get that information at least a week before the prayer time because we assume that God is already working in that person's life, and we're asking him to show us how to pray in keeping with the work that he is doing and wants to do in that person's life. Then when we, the elders and pastors, come together, we'll, we, we, we meet before the sick person gets there, and we'll ask, is, has anyone, did anybody have a word from the Lord as to how we should pray? And there have been times we have had very distinct leadings of the Spirit as to how we should pray. At other times, not so much. So when the person arrives, sometimes they'll bring family members or close friends with them. And we'll begin our time like this. We'll say, one of the things we see in the life and ministry of Jesus, that there are times when Jesus came upon a sick person who was crying out for help, someone who couldn't walk, maybe the person was blind, and that the sick person would ask a very obvious question, or Jesus would ask uh, the sick person a very ob obvious question, and that is, what do you want me to do for you? And so we asked the person, if Jesus was here in the room with us today, and he asked you, what do you want me to do for you? What would you say? And we'll listen to their answer, ask a few questions, and then we'll say something like, uh, we gather to pray for people who request prayer in keeping with what God has told us to do in James chapter 5. And one of the things that James brings up in this passage is the possibility that unconfessed sin can sometimes, not always, but sometimes, be the cause of sickness. And we'll ask, do you know of any unconfessed sin in your life that you need to confess at this time? And most often, the person will not be aware of anything standing between them and God. But we've had folks who got really honest about something that has been hindering intimacy with God, and they will humbly confess that sin. And then we'll ha we have a little vial of uh, frankincense and olive oil, and we explain that uh, the oil is not medicinal, it's symbolic, symbolic of the Holy Spirit's presence in our life. And I or uh, one of the other pastors, if they're leading the meeting, will take a little drop on their finger and uh, make a sign of the cross on their head, and we begin our prayer time. 
and different elders and pastors pray for what the person is asking God to do in their lives, as well as whatever else the Spirit might put into our minds and hearts for that person. Or if we have had a certain leading, we will pray in faith about that particular leading in that person. We seldom seen on-the-spot healing, but we have seen God heal over the next couple of days or weeks. Sometimes it becomes clear that God has other plans, uh, plans to refine and strengthen that person's faith through the sickness, plans for them to rest in and trust in what God is doing through that illness, plans to heal in heaven. That's how we as elders and pastors put this passage into practice. We put feet to our faith by putting knees to our faith in this way. But James says there's an even better way. That's why I said, when, said you might want to call the elders. There's a better way. And that prayer is community prayer. Look at what he says, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So now the emphasis is not calling the elders to come and pray for you. It is living in authentic Christian community, doing life, doing church with people with whom you can be open, transparent, vulnerable, humble, doing life with people you can ask to pray for you and you can pray for them. The best way to live out the Christian life is in close fellowship with other Christians, being connected in smaller community groups, one-anothering environments, which, back to James, this is exactly the opposite of how these people were living. Remember, these scattered congregations were beset by anger and arrogance and selfish ambition. They were snubbing each other, complaining against one another, judging one another. Again, the community was sick, and that's why some of them were sick. And James is calling them to be the kind of church, the spiritual community where they are slow to speak, slow to listen, slow to anger, a community where we refuse to grumble against each other or judge each other, a peacemaking community where you're loving your neighbor as yourself, a community that's full of mercy and good fruit, and that is the soil in which a prayerful community grows. And James is saying you need to be connected to a smaller group of believers with whom you regularly and freely can confess your struggles and your sins, a group of people where you seek mutual encouragement and support, a small group of friends that lift one another up in prayer for all the things you face in life. And he is saying to us, when you put your faith into action in authentic community, you will experience the healing power of grace in all its fullness. When you put your faith into action in an authentic Christian community, you will experience the healing power, power of grace in all its fullness. Now, you know what's interesting to me about that? We just don't believe it. We just don't believe it. You know, I grew up, and I, I bet some of you grew up this way and maybe still think this way. I grew up thinking that the prayer of an elder or pastor is more effective than other people's prayers. I grew up thinking that the, the more people who pray for me, the more chance I will have of God answering that prayer. So it's like there's this prayer meter in heaven 
that you, know, you be, begin to pray about this thing and you've sent out your texts and your emails to everybody you know, and, and that prayer, meeting, prayer meter is just, just it's going up there, but good gracious, I'm five people short of an answer. And so I send out more text and no, that, God's not like that. God's not like that. You just need one or two or three or half a dozen people who know you inside and out and who love you and care for your, for your soul to pray with you. The myth is that only certain people can pray effectively for healing. The myth is that the larger the group of people praying, the better chance you'll, you'll have of getting your prayers answered. Look at verse 16. Confess your sins to each other. This is the New Living Translation. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Earnest prayer is not that worked up prayer of name it and claim it people. I've just, we just got to have faith. Wait, wait you prayed, in the, in the, you prayed for, for God's will to be done? That negates that prayer. <laughs> That's absurd. <clears throat> I'm going to talk about all this next week. It's not worked up prayer. It's Elijah-like prayer, praying fervently, looking for where God is working, asking God to show you what he wants to do in a particular situation, and then praying in line with what God shows you, if he shows you, and praying in ways that God might prompt you to pray. you got to be open, though, to the Spirit's prompted. And if he doesn't show you, then pray and ask God for what you want, and trust him to do what he knows is right in his time and his way, and learn to rest in that. That's the kind of prayer that righteous people pray. And by the way, righteous is not a special class of very, very special spiritual people. Righteous simply means somebody who's walking with God. Someone who's right with God and others, and they're not aware of any sin in their life that would break fellowship with God. The the point is, anyone's prayers can be effective who walks with God and seeks to know God. Hear me. Two or three people who you are close with Two or three people who will seek God's will with you regarding the troubles you find yourself in. Two or three people who you trust enough to share your struggles with. I'm telling you, James is telling us, praying with those kinds of friends is the most effective kind of prayer. Community prayer. And James is implying that if you live in a community like that, it may be very rare that you need to call for the elders to pray for you. You may need to call for the elders to pray for you, but you have all the prayer support you really need in a group of close friends. So in this letter, in the letter... James says, in the midst of pain and suffering and sickness, when things don't go like you hope, when you're treated unfairly, when you're hurting and you're tempted to doubt God's goodness, he says, put feet to your faith by putting knees to your faith. When you're in trouble, pray. When you're cheerful, sing praises. When you're sick, you might want to call for the elders to come pray for you. But when you live in authentic Christian community with a small group of friends you, you trust and who trust you, you need to know that praying together, you will experience God's grace and healing 
in very real, tangible, powerful ways. That's the text in context. Now, my question to you is, are you living in a community like that? And if not, I want to encourage you to stop by the community group table out at the east end of the commons, and some friendly people there will help you get plugged into a group, and you can begin this journey. And if you need somebody to pray for you this morning, uh, we have a prayer team over on the side of the building here, and there's some friendly people there that would be glad to pray for you and pray with you about whatever is on your heart. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Some of it's really hard to kind of understand because we've got so many preconceived ideas. We've got so many things that we've picked up through the years that really, well, they don't always fit with what Scripture actually says. And Lord, we want to be a, a people. We want to be a community of, of faith that where Scripture is coming to life in our midst. A, a, a community of faith where this Scripture has life and breath in our midst. We want to be a community of faith where two or three are gathered in your name can experience very real, tangible, powerful answers of, to prayer. And we ask that you would make us to be that kind of community. I thank you, Lord. We're already on that journey. We've come so far, but we're still learning, and we ask you to continue to teach us. Holy Spirit, continue to lead us. And I do ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.